My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Well, when I was a young boy, this was one of my favorite friends, a map. Uh, I spent a lot of time my younger years in the back seat of cars because our family drove from Indiana to California, Indiana to California, Indiana to California, Indiana to Georgia, Indiana to California, Indiana to Florida, Indiana to California, then Indiana to California. I think that's about how many times. Went to 13 different schools by the time I was in 10th grade, and one year I was in three different schools. And... Um, it was just like living in the backseat of a car, driving from coast to coast. So I loved maps. Some of you didn't even know what this was. <laughs> How cute. Um, map of the Western United States. What I loved about maps was it helped me figure out where I was. We are people of place. We're people of space. We need identity, and land provides that. And so I would watch these signs, how many miles to Albuquerque, you know, how many miles to Los Angeles, and I would plot that on a map, and I would follow that. And the best part about this was I learned how to do this without destroying it. And again, anybody under 30 has no idea what I just did. (laughs) And then, and then, my life was changed. It was. It really was. In high school, when I met Thomas, I love Thomas. (laughs) Thomas's guide uh, was amazing. I bought one, kept it in my car. Uh, I had one for Sonoma County. This is Santa Barbara, Ventura County. It's all I could find on eBay anymore. And um, and and I would just keep this in my car and and up in Petaluma there and Santa Rosa and those areas. I would you know need to go somewhere for work or, or whatever, and I would go in the back, and I would open up and I'd find the road. And then I'd find the corresponding page. And then you would get there, and then you'd realize as you drive, you have to jump a page. And sometimes you don't jump here, you jump to here. It was a little confusing, but I knew where I was going because I had Thomas with me. Um, Then my mom got this thing uh, in her car called GPS, and I didn't like it. First of all, she called it Lola. No offense, but I'm like, I don't want Lola telling me what to do. And Lola would tell me what to do, and I'm like, I don't like this. And then I got a smartphone, and then it all came together, and now I enjoy it, now I like it. Kevin and I were just on a trip, and it just yells at you, or talks to you, you know? It's like, do this, do that, and and it's fun, you know? It's easy, because you don't have to really think about it anymore, which is a problem, I fear for my sons. I don't think they know what north is, (laughs) you know what I mean? Does anybody know what north is anymore? South, east, and west. I, I think we all need a map for life. I think the Bible is a map for life. It's so much more than that. It's God's words. But uh, there is this one text of Scripture that says this, that the Bible is our our map, and it shows us the road that we should go on. 
And when, not if, but when we get off of that road, it will correct us, it'll rebuke us, and it'll tell us we're on the road, and not just let us know we're on the wrong road, it'll get us back on the right road. And once it gets us back on the right road, it will strengthen us to stay on that road. That's God's desire for us. And, and his words are, are the roadmaps for our life. And if you ever opened up the Bible, you've discovered that without maps, it's kind of hard to understand some of the Bible. In fact, that's why uh, there is a book of maps if you have a physical Bible. I'm sure it's in the back of every one of your physical Bibles. Genesis to maps, right? Because at the very end, there's Israel and the Old and the New Testament and Sea of Galilee and where Jesus walked and all that stuff. And that's really important. I mean, it might not be your first thing you think about when you think of the Bible, but it's hard to understand some parts of the Bible without the map. In fact, if you read the story of Jonah, this prodigal prophet, he is in Israel, and he is told to go and preach to the Ninevites. Uh, and, and he goes down to Joppa, and he boards the ship to Tarshish. And you're like, okay, that sounds cool. It's like Forest Grove. Just past Forest Grove, right? No. Um, well, it doesn't make any sense to you look on a map and you realize he was told to go east, and he goes west. It's like something's wrong with this guy. He's going the exact opposite direction. Of course, God gets the last on that one, right? Or when it says in John 4, the story of Jesus, where he's down in the Jerusalem area and he has to go to Galilee, and it says he had to go through Samaria, which you look at a map and you realize, no, he didn't, which I'm not saying the Bible's wrong. I'm just saying no good Jew would go through Samaria. You would go around because the map will show you the route they would take. They would go so far out of their way to get there. Why? Well, because he had to encounter this woman at a well. In fact, the whole town heard about Jesus because of that. Maps help us make sense of life. And when we open up the text of the Bible and we don't have a map, it really doesn't mean as much as it could. A number of years ago, Pastor Kevin and I went to Israel. We did a three-week history and geography of Israel course. And we were given maps. We were given nine maps. And we were told, go do these studies, go find the corresponding map, look at these texts of scriptures and grab your pencils, colored pencils, mark on them, draw triangles and squares and circles and arrows and roads and dashes and all these things will make sense one day. And you get all this work done. It was a tremendous amount of work. This is the one for Galilee. And then we show up in Israel and we get on a bus and then the person who's leading the trip, Carl says, okay, now we're going to stop, grab map five and grab map nine. And you grab him and you walk out. He goes, okay, nine. Remember that little city you circled and brown go ahead and take a look at that now turn your map this way and here you are and you're like whoa the bible just came alive to us if you're going to go on our israel trip you will have to do all the map work but it will change your understanding of scripture because when you see the bible with the map really it begins to make sense because we are a people of space we are people of time we know locality we get that but we enter the bible and we don't understand their culture and so a verse that's in Mark chapter 4, that will be the preface to what we see today, doesn't make any sense to us. 4.35, as evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. Now, obviously that made sense to you if you put the words together, but there was no tension. None of you just reviled in horror. None of you just panicked, right? None of you started to sweat. But if you were a first century Jewish reader, you would sweat. You would wonder what is wrong with Jesus Nobody gets in the boat and goes to the other side of the lake. First of all, the lake is huge. The lake has storms, which we will see next week. Awesome story in chapter 4. But worse, those people live on the other side of the lake. Well, what is that? Take a look at this map. This is Israel. It's a, it's a narrow but tall country, and you could easily spot it with the Dead Sea in the south. Jerusalem's here and the Sea of Galilee in the north. Jesus did most of his ministry up here with his disciples, and he went down to Jerusalem 
But if you take a look at Galilee itself, he pretty much did all his ministry in this area in the north. And the north were where the religious Jews lived, where they worked, where they, where they did everything. It was this religious uh, enclave. It was this safe, protective area for the religious Jews to hang out. And most of his ministry was in Capernaum. It became his home base, as Brandon shared last week. That's where Peter lived. And Peter's mother-in-law lived. Which Mother-in-law, which again, is like, okay, Peter was married. The rest of the disciples aren't mentioned that they're married, so they're younger, and uh, they're probably in their teens, and so this is Jesus with his disciples as, as a youth group, as a youth ministry, as we would call it, and he does this ministry all up here in the north. Many people believe, many people don't believe, you know. He does his preaching and teaching and healing up here in this area, but on the other side of the lake is foreign territory. It's Gentile territory. This over here, Tiberias, this was a Roman uh, military outpost. It was a governing place. Jews wouldn't go there unless they had to. But over here on the right was this area called the Decapolis, the 10 towns that had been set up by Alexander the Great's generals. If you know anything about history, about 300 years before Jesus came, Alexander the Great as a young man swept through the known world and he conquered everything in his path. Amazing, amazing military might. But he wasn't just a military strategist. He was a missionary for his worldview, for his belief system. We would call it his religion, but it was more like a humanistic religion. This is what uh, the Greek system of thought was for Alexander, called Hellenism. Hellas is what, it's Greece. That's what Greece is called, Hellas. The human being is the ultimate creation. So we are the ultimate of everything. We just need to glorify ourselves. We need to be on display because we're it. The human mind is the ultimate source of truth. If you want to know anything, you have to go inside your mind. So the Plato's and the Aristotle's, the Socrates of the world. The human body is the ultimate source of beauty. So let's display it, uh, most, mostly in the nude. Let's display it in all of its glory. Let's uh, put on parades and acts where the human body is on display. The human mind is the ultimate source of morals. Only you can decide what's right or wrong. It's not the crowd. It's not the culture. It's you. You determine what's right for you, and whatever's right for you is right for you, okay? That's the world that Alexander the Great exported to every culture and every country he took over because he wanted to change it for his Greek system. And one of the brilliant ways he did it, and it was unbelievably brilliant, was he brought in, or changed, but in the case of Israel, he brought in four key uh, institutions into the land that did not exist before this time. The first one was the theater. If you go to Israel or you go to Greece or Turkey. Kevin and I got a chance to do that this spring. You will see theaters everywhere. And the theaters would hold maybe 5,000 people or up to 25,000 people if you go to Ephesus. And that many people in a theater watching plays. Now, why this was important for Alexander the Great was he wanted people to adopt the drama and the emotions and the philosophical underpinnings that come with art. He wanted everybody to say, that's true beauty. And yet a Jewish person wouldn't go to the theater because in the theater there were these displays of immorality, displays of horror, displays of violence. They wouldn't participate in that because people would wear masks and be put on display, and you can't make a graven image. But there were idols everywhere in these theaters. But he brought the arts, and he changed the culture through the arts. Also, he changed the culture through education. For education, he introduced the gymnasium where, you know, Thank God we don't have this today, junior high boys, right? Because everybody went around naked, okay? You entered school and you took your clothes off and you went around naked. I was like, wow, that junior high was hard enough as it is, you know what I mean? 
And, and then you, you would not just exercise your body, but your mind. A gymnasium was education, it was school. And where you would not just get an education, you'd get a brand new worldview. Because your teachers would tell you this is what's right and this is what's wrong. And you'd begin to adopt the philosophies of the Greek teachers. And so you'd change the young people, you would change the generations to come. And then for the area of sports, he introduced the arenas. Uh, the arenas, if you ever think of like the Ben-Hur type stories, the gladiator type stories, these were the man-on-man, man-on-beast kind of violent uh, you know, acts of war, of battle, of bloodshed that the people thirsted for. And they would do all of this, you know, in, whether it was gladiators in their, you know, their protective gear or their sports people, you know, with the Olympics and such in the nude. And they would cheer this on or they would thumb up or thumb down and people would be killed or animals would be killed. And there was this bloodthirsty violence that came along with sports. But if he could wrap the culture into sports, he could sway them to his belief system of Hellenism. And finally, in the area of religion or worship, he introduced temples. Now, every culture, every group had a temple. Even the Jews had a temple. But these were temples to the foreign gods, the Apollos, the Athena, the Zeus, and you know, those, those kind of gods, the Hermes, the, the Pan God. And all these Greek temples began to be built around. And so if you were a person growing up in a Jewish world where there's only one God, there's only one place to worship God, that's the temple, pretty soon all these other Temples propped up, popped up everywhere. And if you've ever been to see any of the Greek temples, they were amazing, unbelievable in scope, size, where you'd walk in with these massive six-foot columns of marble that rise 60 feet up with a roof of marble. And you would walk in, you'd think, this must be a great God because look at his or her place. Now, that is the world that was dumped into the land of Israel. And you can imagine the tension of a Jewish mom, a Jewish dad, a Jewish religious leader when all of this showed up and you couldn't fight it because the conqueror had now instituted these places for your new lifestyle and you had to morph your life into that. And man, it was tough for religious people. And by and large, the religious people, at least of the northern part of Israel, they withdrew to their little area of Capernaum. Let's take a look at that map again. And they hung out here and if we can just withdraw from culture and if we can just be religiously right, and if we can just protect ourselves in the next generation, we'll hold on, right? But we've been seeing again and again, that's not how Jesus did it. Jesus went around doing good. Jesus served other people. He didn't just hold on to beliefs. He gave his life away, right? He didn't just have theologically correct, you know, ideas in his head. He gave everything to love and to serve people. And he, he, he ultimately gave his life on a cross for you and for me. And so before he does that, he takes his disciples to the other side of the lake. Now, that's the tension. And I don't know if you feel it, but that would be like Pastor Taylor, who's a great youth pastor, comes to me and on his last day of youth ministry at Sunrise Church, says, James, I want the three vans to go take our junior high boys to Vegas. As I said, the last day of his youth ministry at Sunrise Church. I'm like, seriously, you're going to Vegas? Have you been there? And not just in the daytime, but at night? You don't take junior high boys to Vegas. I know somebody was excited over here. Don't get excited, okay? All right, all right. You don't, I mean, you couldn't get a mama note for taking your kid to Vegas, right? Can you imagine mama signing off for the disciples? Okay, you can go with Jesus to the other side of the lake. No way you're going to the other side of the lake because that's where all that pagan stuff is. That's where all the immorality is. That's the other side of the lake. That's where the prodigal son went to hang out with the pigs, right? We don't go there. Our boys, our girls, don't go there because that's where the enemy is, and we fight against that. We withdraw into our culture. We withdraw into our safe haven of our religious belief system. 
But Jesus got on the boat and he took his disciples to the other side of the lake. Now, if you open your Bible to Mark 5, verse 1 to 20, we're going to jump ahead. We'll see the story in between next week, and it's a powerful story. But Mark chapter 5 is where we'll begin today. It says that they have crossed the lake already, which is a killer story. Come back. So they arrived at the other side of the lake, it says. So they're about seven miles away. You could see it if you stand in Capernaum. You could look at the hills. If the cities were still there gleaming, they would light up at night like a city on a hill that can't be hidden when you stand there in Capernaum. And you would see those gleaming cities of progress and culture. And that's where Jesus shows up. As they arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes, every translation has a different name. But, but the bottom line is it's the people who were outcasts, the people that were far from God. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out of the tombs to meet him. Now, this is kind of a cool thought because if if you're one of the disciples and you're, you know, heading over on the lake there and you're like, does mom know? Is mom going to find out? And it's like, but that's where the Satan people live. And all of a sudden, this demon guy, this Satan guy runs out to you. We're going to see he's naked. He's cut. He's, you know, probably bleeding. He's got scars. He's wild man. He's demon possessed. It's like when you get out of the boat, you're like, I'm freaked out already crossing the sea. And now Satan meets us himself. All right. This is a pretty monumental moment in the story. A man with an evil spirit came out of the tombs to meet him. The tombs, well, that's where he lived. They were cave-like tombs where you would put dead bodies. This is where he lived. It says, the man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained. Restrained? What does that mean? Even with a chain. What? Remember, my wife and I, you know, I think for a millisecond contemplated one of those backpacks you put on the kids with a light, you know, like tether, you know? We had a runner. And... Um, Say, no, I can't do that. He's not an animal, you know? No despairing anybody that did that because I I get the tension. But um, this guy's chained. Who chains people down? The man lived in the barrel caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. Who is this guy? And worse, who is this culture that does this to him? No one was strong enough to subdue him. That word subdue in the original language is the word you would use to bind a wild beast, a roaring lion, a cougar, an animal that is out of control and you would shackle and bind it and rope it down and tie it up. And that's all they did to this man. Day and night, he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills howling and cutting himself with sharp knives. Sharp stones. Think about this. We know he's got a demon. In fact, we're going to see it's a lot more than a demon. It's a lot of demons. We know that he's an outcast. We know, based on the story and what Matthew tells us, the parallel story, he's naked. You can imagine wild hair, cuts all over his body, bleeding, just shrieking in horror as the demons inside of him are shrieking to his mind. And when they try to pin him down like a wild beast, he breaks and snaps the chains because of the superhuman strength of the demons inside of him. And he runs around like a wild man, and he goes into the burial caves at night. Uh, These are some caves that you'll find on the other side of the lake in the Transjordan area. And the burial practice in the Middle East, even today, is to bury someone immediately. You would take the body and you would put it in a cave and, and it would decay or the wild beasts would begin to gnaw on it. And what was left were just bones. After a while, the smell and the stench decayed. 
but you would just have body upon body stuck in these caves, and this guy lived there. Dead people are his only companion. And he runs and he shrieks. What keeps people from Jesus? When you think about someone who is hurting and broken, maybe shackled, the Bible says that with sin, with uh, addictions and habits that are actually destructive to them, when they've got something spiritually dark in their life to the point where they're cutting themselves and hurting themselves, and, and even the culture itself says, I don't know what to do with this person, let's put them away over here. Let's lock them up in a room. Let's put them in a straitjacket because we can't do anything. Let's hide them because we don't know what to do. Let's just get, get, get rid of them so we don't have to see them anymore or hear them anymore, right? What keeps people from Jesus? Well, I, I know this. You don't have to have all those things go on to be kept from Jesus. Pain and isolation keep people from Jesus. The pain of this world. He lived in the Decapolis, this guy, where gleaming cities of advanced cultures were, and yet Satan had got a hold of him. The enemy of our soul had gotten a hold of him. I don't know if you believe in Satan. I don't know if you believe in demonology or what demons can do. It's all over the Bible. But the reality is this guy was possessed by an unseen enemy. And that unseen enemy controlled his life. We don't know how he got there. We don't know any of the backstory, But we know this is the snapshot. This guy is lost and hopeless. And he's isolated from everybody else. And he's in pain. Can you imagine his pain? According to Jewish culture... The guy, he's got three strikes because he's out. He's a Gentile. He's nothing more than a dog or a pig, right? They didn't have any hope for those Gentiles. He was demon-possessed, which means he's in the hands of Satan. And he lived in the tombs, and he was constantly in religious defilement because he's hanging out with dead bodies. Imagine Jesus saying, hey, let's go. We're going to go to that guy. Well, why? Because Jesus loved him in his lostness and brokenness and his messiness. You know, we should never, ever, ever turn our back on people, ever, but especially people who everybody considers unclean because God has made everybody in his image. And no matter how our brokenness and sinfulness bring us to the point of cutting ourselves and destroying ourselves, I mean, think about this. Satan did a good work destroying the image of God in this guy, right? Distorting the image of God. No matter how much that is what that person looks like, they're dearly loved by God. And Jesus went to him, and we got to go to him. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. Not in worship, as in like, I want to follow you, Jesus, but in homage to the fact that you're God and I'm not, okay? With a shriek, he screamed, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. What? Jesus isn't going to beat this guy out. But this isn't the guy talking. This is the demon talking. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, what is your name? There's a lot of weird stuff in this story. What is your name? I want to know your name. The answer is unbelievable. My name is Legion. Legion. Because there are many of us inside this man. When you look at history and and the etymology of the word, Legion first showed up, and it meant about 2,000 men prepared for battle. And by the time the word, you know, leaves the scene, it's about 8,000 men prepared for battle. So somewhere around here, it's like 6,000 men. Now, I don't know if that's exact count, but, but the metaphor, the picture, the symbolism is clear. This guy's got thousands of demons inside of him, shrieking and screaming, controlling him. One is in control. One is the spokesperson. And then the evil spirits. This is, this is weird. This is really a weird story. Nobody reads this to their kids at night. Um, let's... <laughs> 
let's read a nice Bible story and drift off to sleep, right? No. This, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Because um, I think this is a weird story, all right? Let's admit it. Then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. The original is the idea of the abyss. Don't send us the abyss. The abyss is, is the, the place of judgment, the place of containment until the end of all times. Jesus had power. He had enough power to send them to eternal destruction. And they said, please, he begged, they begged him, don't send us to the abyss. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into those pigs, the spirit begged. Let us enter them. Again, this is trippy because, I mean, you know, every once in a while I look at my cat and I go, yeah, that makes sense, you know? But it's like <laughs> demons going into pigs? Well, it's better than the abyss, right? Maybe we'll possess the pigs for a while and go jump to another host because that's what demons did, right? That's what they do. Uh, th this reminds us this is not in Israel territory. This is in the Decapolis because this is definitely a place far from God's people because the Jews never hung out with pigs. They didn't raise pigs. They didn't eat pigs over in the Gentile territory. They raised them. They ate them. In fact, the Roman standard 10th legion, you can see on the shield, the sign of the boar, an image of a boar was on there and highly offensive to Jews. And you imagine, you know, Roman walking through with the, you know, hey, you see my standard? It's like, tick you off even more. Not only am I in control, I'm offending you to your face because I got pigs on my shield. Again, think about the prodigal son. He went to a foreign land, and he was raising pigs and wanted to eat their food. You know, about 200 years before this event, it's written in the book of First and Second Maccabees, if you, you find it in a history book. Um, it says that a, a, a pagan ruler in Israel sacrificed a pig on the altar. The abomination of desolation the worst thing he could ever do. And he was forcing the Jews to eat pork. And they rose up. Judas Maccabeus rose up, rose up and they fought their captors back. I was reading, and this is, a, this is a really, every once in a while something in the Bible pops out. In Isaiah 65, verse 4, this is weird. God's looking at his people, the Hebrews, the nation of Israel. He says, you're acting like pagans. And this is what he says about them. At night they go out among the graves, worshiping the dead. Well, that sounds familiar, right? They eat the flesh of pigs and make stews with other forbidden foods. God says, you're acting like a pagan. This guy was a pagan. This guy was as irreligious as it gets. Everything about this guy screams unclean. He's a Gentile. Uh, he lives in tombs. He's naked. He's possessed by many unclean spirits. There are pigs nearby. He's crying out, shrieking out in desperation. The very nature of demon possession was to reduce this man to being no more valuable than an animal, a wild beast. But Jesus saw him as one made in the image of God. And so the story says, so Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the entire herd of about 2,000 pigs plunged down into the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. Wow, swine flu right there, man. Sorry. Um, and they went into the water. Um, the lake or the sea in Jewish understanding was known as the place of darkness, to home or the abyss. And so, in, in one sense, we'll see next week, the disciples crossed the abyss to get to this guy, and they, demons didn't want to be sent to the abyss, so they sent him and the pigs who jumped into the abyss. So a little bit of humor there in the story. It says, the herdsmen fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus. Now check this out. Matthew builds on this story, but it says, 
And they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there. He was sitting there. He wasn't running around. He wasn't screaming. He wasn't shrieking. He was sitting there fully clothed. When was the last time the guy was wearing clothes, right? Fully clothed and perfectly sane. He was in his right mind. And they were all afraid. Yeah. That was his holy terror that swept over them. Then those who had seen what happened told the others and the demon-possessed man and the pigs, and check it out, and the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. Wow. This was too much even for a pagan culture to imagine. We know what demons do, but if you can control demons, why don't you just back up, because this is too much for us. And it says this, as Jesus was getting into the boat, that's it? No, like, big campaign, we're not going to hold a crusade for 10 days? No, that's it. This guy's enough. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. By the way, that's the same word the demons used. They begged. And Jesus had power over the demons, and he had power over this guy, and he used both times for good. Because this guy wouldn't have been accepted back in Capernaum in the religious area. He wouldn't have been welcomed no matter what happened to him because he was still unclean in their eyes. Jesus said, no, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. I love that. My friends, I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you know anything, something about demons. Maybe you know something about spiritual oppression. But you know about a lot of other oppression. You know about a lot of other shackles. You know about a lot of other cuts, a lot of other bleeding, a lot of other insanity, a lot of other nakedness. We know of this in our lives. And if Jesus has freed you, you have a story to tell. And it may not be like this. It may not be this big, okay? This is a big one. There's only one of these, you know, in the Bible. But you have a story I love it in John chapter 9, one of my favorite stories in the book of John, the story of Jesus. It says that there's this guy who had been blind. He was blind his whole life, 40 years, and Jesus comes up and heals him, and the guy can see. And, and people are asking, what happened? I don't know. I was blind, and now I see. But tell us more. <laughs> Dude, I was blind, so it means I couldn't see anything. And this guy <laughs> talked to me, and then I could see, and that's all I know. And he left. I don't even know who it was. Well, tell us how it happened. Are you not listening? I was blind, and now I see. That's my whole story. It can fit on a three-by-five card. It can fit on a business card. You can tweet it. I was blind and now I see. Hashtag, right? You know? I was blind. Now I see. This guy, I don't know anything. This guy gets out of a boat. I, could, I probably can't remember 20 years of my life because I was filled with demons and darkness. But I remember this, that he spoke a word and all of a sudden I'm clear and I'm clean and I'm getting clothes on and I'm getting a shave and I'm getting you know, all mopped up from my blood and I'm sitting there and I'm eating a meal and I'm having a real conversation with a real person for the first time in however long. And, and he says, now go. And so I went, and I just started telling everybody about it. And it's an amazing story. It says here, now go home and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he's been. So the man started off to visit the ten towns. That's the Decapolis of that region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. It's, it's like one thing. It's great, though, okay? And everyone was amazed at what he told them. When Satan wanted to destroy this guy, Jesus delivered him. Now, I mean, think about this. You have a story to tell, my friends. And it's not... It's not as big as this. None of ours is as big as this. But there's something going on that Jesus has done in your life. You've got to go tell people, your family, your friends. History tells us that when the early church finally went into this area, in the book of Acts, and the story tells, when they finally moved into this, history tells us that people already heard about Jesus, and they were very receptive because they already knew about this guy. Because this guy had gone around telling everybody about Jesus. If you have experienced the healing touch of Jesus in whatever way, you have a story to tell. And for you to not tell it is to other people's doom. You got to tell people the story. I was listening to a great preacher many, many years ago. It was a conference on AIDS and HIV and how the church needs to respond to this long, long time ago. 
And John Ortberg, Pastor John Ortberg, asked this question in this conference and speaking about, you know, people that are inflicted, afflicted with AIDS and HIV and all stuff. And this was really during the early season where people were afraid of anything associated with that. And he said, you know, there is a kind of love that seeks value in what it loves. And there's a kind of love that creates value in what it loves. Which one are you? And it's like, whoa, think about this just for the rest of your life. There is a kind of love that gets its identity from those it loves, that goes and sucks identity out of it. I love you so I can get something. I love you so I can be. I love you so I can have. And that's the world kind of love. That's a worldly love. But there's a kind of love that creates, that actually gives identity when we go in love. That by loving, we give someone purpose. We give someone life. Someone life. What kind of love do you have for people? And, and my, my final question is, are you going to the other side? I don't know what the other side is. Is it a, a religious divide? We are divided as a nation. We are. We live in fear. We have anxiety. Come back next week. We're going to talk about that. But we live in divided territory. We have political divides. We have religious divides. We have cultural divides. We have musical divides. We have sexual divides. We live in a country, in a people, in a culture now that is so polarized left to right, whatever that might be for you. And we only hang out with people like us to validate our position. What would it take for you to go to the other side? The religious leaders of Jesus' day decided that the only thing we could do is come pull back to our side and be right. Let's be right. And I don't think that's right. And so Jesus went to the other side. He's gone to the other side for you, and he's gone to the other side for me, and he's called us to go to the other side because the other side needs love. And Jesus has that love, and he's done something for you, and we can take it to them. Before we go on with the story, I want to pray, because some of you maybe are on the other side. You might have some family members on the other side. You're trying to reach people on the other side, or you're afraid of the other side. Jesus can answer all those. Let's pray. Father God, when we think about the other side, we all have a picture in our mind of the person who's wrong, <laughs> the person who's in sin, the person we don't want to hang out with. And we're right and they're wrong, God. And we've already firmly settled that in our mind and we use you to back it up. And we have verses, and we have Bible stories, and we have scripture memorized, and we have a bullhorn, and we have a box we're standing on and we're screaming at people because they're wrong. But that's not how you did it. You went to the other side and loved them and it entered into their world and brought freedom. And you've called us to do the same. And we have a story to tell. It's a story of a loving Savior that has come to push back the darkness and bring light. Father, move in our hearts, break our hearts this week for the fact that Christianity in America has failed America because we've chosen to be right over being loving. <laughs> and we weren't even right in the first place. We were just more concerned about being true and being safe and building walls and building churches to hide in. And the world is lost all around us. May we bust out of our doors and break down our walls and go beat Jesus to them. And even amongst fear and even amongst questions and even amongst uncertainty, just go and provide the love of Jesus to people. And in doing so, Father, change us, change our nation because of Jesus' love, we pray in your name. Amen. If we could, this is, a, this is a neat moment to have a conversation about, you know, the reality of mental illness and the reality of mental health. And so, first of all, 
Um, it's a big moment for us and you and our staff and just our church. Can you guys just give Amanda a welcome? <laughs> she uh, she's, uh, does admin work, but she, more than that, anybody that, that is on staff here does ministry, and so she helps the homeless and those that are struggling. And, and so I just want to set the table uh, just a little bit. Next week, um, this week, I always say next week, this week is Mental Health Awareness Week. And, and so as a church, you know, our heart is for those that are hurting. You know, that's one of the reasons I came here. I was hurting and I just got off alcohol and drugs. So you guys know that, that we're always reaching out. Many of you have participated helping people walk through a journey with mental health and mental illness. Or some of you are experiencing it now. It's just a reality. Some of you are parents that your child is struggling with this. And, and so there's kind of four pieces to this as we want to continue to have a conversation more on purpose and light it up and be more intentional. That's our heart, James and I and our staff, is uh, if people are struggling with mental illness, there's, uh, they need community. And they need Jesus Christ. And, man, we can provide that, can't we? That's what we are. We're a community of broken people that come together and we look to Christ together. But there also needs to be honest, open conversations. There's a lot of myths. There's a lot of stigmas about mental health and mental illness, isn't there? There's been in my life. I've experienced struggles myself in my mind, and I've lost two family members uh, to mental illness. So for me, I've been on both sides of this. But there shouldn't be any myths. There shouldn't be anything that's hidden. There shouldn't be taboos. So, and the best thing we can do is get it in the light, right? So we're going to have a conversation about Amanda's journey. And then we want to provide some education and resources. Back on the table, the connection table, there's some great resources uh, for you guys. If you're struggling with mental illness, there's a resource for you. If you're a parent where your children are or a sibling, there's a resource for you that we'd like you to grab. We're going to have a small group. It's called Fresh Hope, right? Mental Health Matters that Amanda and another gal's going to lead. And so that's, that's what we're going to talk about. So Amanda, thank you. Yeah, no Thank problem. you for this. And so let's start out when you were little. Um, you know, your parents provided you with a biblical foundation. Yeah, so my dad was really good at providing that biblical foundation that we needed as children. Um, he was that strong leader and he really guided us. And that's when, um, you know, early on I learned to grasp the concept of God and, and the Bible and God's love for me and, and really God's presence in my life started in the very early, early, early years. We have a lot in common. I mean, both of us felt different, like we didn't belong. And you then, are. I, I am different, okay. <laughs> but I belong now. <laughs> Community. So. Um, that was a good one. Sorry. Yeah, uh, no, no. Uh, so we're different, <laughs> which is not bad. But your dad really struggled with you. Yeah, so my dad really just struggled with that difference um, immensely, probably with lots of things, but um, with me more so um, than my siblings because I was a lot wilder, a lot more outspoken, um, harder to control, and he really just had that need to control and contain me and just those things that God put in me for a reason. He needed to get out of me, um, and so he spent a lot of time just trying to be done with that and his favorite method of doing that was to duct tape me together, my hands and feet and my mouth, and put me in bed and leave me there until I could comply with whatever it was that he wanted um, at that time. And the more he did that, the more I fought. And that's what, yeah. so we battled. And then at eight, it was kind of all for nothing because your dad made a choice that impacted you. Right, so the point of duct taping children probably doesn't work very well as far as control goes if you decide to kill yourself. Um, and that's what he chose to do. Um, so one day we were at school, that's the choice that he made. 
um, for his family and for his children and came home and saw that and that mess that he left behind and you see the blood at the end of the hallway and that's kind of where things changed. And then as kids, we all do this. We create walls and defenses to protect ourselves and, and you found a place, a spot to get comfort at that point in your life. Yeah, so there wasn't a lot of comfort. My mom wasn't really capable of being comforting and, and in her own way and that's what she struggled with and in return that's what we got to struggle with and so my method of finding comfort and what was happening was at night to lay in that spot that he died in that spot where the blood was and that's where God would meet me and that's where God started to join me in that pain and to be a part of that with me when I was little. So you, you literally just lay just there? Lay, that was, just lay there. It's, just, you know, his... In the spot? You know, just his bedrooms across the hallway, long hallway, okay. you know, there's just yeah. a spot. And so in the sense, I mean, these are your words, of the blood ended, God began yeah. somehow so in that where spot. That's, so where that, so where that, where, where my dad ended his life is where kind of God picked up and filled that role and he would stay with me um, in that spot when I was little and comfort me there but um, it didn't always stay that way. Mm. And then so you're left with yourself and trying to cope, but you're left with your mom too, who's really struggling. Yeah, so um, when I was too big for God to kind of be in that spot with me, it got really easy for me to push him away because it was pretty bitter that he left me with my mom, who in her own struggles um, with mental illness and different things that she struggled with, um, really just kind of raged a war within our family to end really just the anger that she had with my dad. And she took that out on, um, on all of us kids, and my siblings and I, and so, yeah. And then we, we all know this, we kind of become what we, we can become what we hate, and so you started leaving marks like your I parents did. left on, you know, with your, yeah. you know, I left big that. marks. I took what I had learned, and I learned it really, really well, and I perfected it. I took it to my family, and I took it to my marriage, and I took it to my kids, and I took it to the people around me, and I, um, I was angry, and I was angry with God, and I took it out on God and was not going to have anything to do with it. This was not going to be fixed. It was much easier to be miserable. And then somehow you, you figured something out, I mean, with God, about how to live with this. So, yeah, I mean, eventually I did figure out how to live with God and how to depend on him and rely on him to help me fix those things and repair the damage. And a lot of professional help and a lot of a lot of trying and a lot of failing and a lot of trying and a lot of learning to be dependent on God to take that role and to let him lead and to let him take care of me. Yeah. And so now we kind of come up to current, we're a staff, we're a family, we walk through things with each other and you know it's, it's still a battle. It's You're still, still a battle. in it but not alone. So I learned to like I learned to get along with people. <laughs> I learned to like people. I learned to get along with people, which helped a lot. So in that, um, in that battle and in that war of learning how to get along with people, it's just I still struggle. So I still struggle with long bouts of depression and it's really dark places and panics and suicide you know, attempts and suicide, uh, suicidal feelings and um, hurting myself and spending four days in the hospital and being cranky about staff meetings and feelings and, you know, everything. So in June, 
Yeah. You know, you let me know that you needed to go in to get some help, and so that's real current. I don't think and I really told you. I think I told somebody else, and then they told you. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, eventually I found out. <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, that's a difficult thing because we don't know what to do except, right. you know, uh, when you come back, just welcome you. And, you know, and was it hard to come back? Yeah, it was hard to come back because somebody thought I was on vacation mm. um, and because I kept it a secret. Yeah. So even though I worked in this place where we probably shouldn't have secrets, it was still a secret. People didn't know. And then just the time came where I needed to share that and let people know and let people in and let them know that this is what I struggle with. And so now it's, you'll, you'll be okay. Yeah, you'll be okay. Yeah. So in, in the end, you do end up being okay. It does end up working out. It does get really, really hard. It does not stay easy, and it's a constant work. And even though God is an ever-present part of my life, I'm still going to struggle. I'm still going to have harder times, and so are other people. So it's not a lack of, it's not a lack of belief or a lack of faith. It's just who we are. So what, what do you want to say to someone that's struggling right now or a uh, parent or siblings where, you know, the reality is someone in their family may have a mental health issue or a mental illness? Some of us can hide it really well. Um, so you may know people in your small groups or in your community groups or whatever, and you may not know because they may not share and they may hide it. So I think it's just learning how to pick that up and kind of meet them where they're at and make that safe, that topic, that struggle, that inability, that vulnerability. So we're in the conversation, right? We're going to continue the conversation that we've had for years, but more on purpose. Can we give her a hand? Can we thank Amanda? So, so we, we know you're not alone, and I'm going to pray in a little bit for us. But it is, you know, we, we have community here. You know, it's not perfect because we're part of it. <laughs> I'm part of the communities. You know what? But we do need each other, and that's the only way because Satan does want us in a cave. Satan does want us to hide and, and to keep things secret. And when we get in the light, that's where the healing is. So, you know, this is a good moment for all of us and for you and to get it in the light and so it can lose its power. But we also um, want to have resources and education. You know, and even though I've been in it on both sides, I'm learning a lot. So we're going to start that. We've got a group. All the information's back there. So let's pray together, huh? Love you guys. Lord, we come before you just humbly and available. And our hearts are yours and our minds sometimes struggle, Lord. And, you know, you know, there's folks out here right now that are struggling in some areas. Maybe it's a, that anxiety that's just running away or, or they're hearing voices or they're, you know, whatever it is, Lord. We want to be a safe place where they can come and have community, but also that we can have conversations, Lord. There's no shame in this, Lord. Whatever those myths are and taboo, there's, there's no shame in your eyes. We're, like James said, we're all made in your image, Lord. And Satan's job is to scar and wreck and ruin and, and, and uh, kill that image. And we're going to be a church that says, no, this is no different than someone that's struggling in another area, Lord. So, um, Lord, we want to be a church where we're just start, we're, we're continuing the conversation, but if someone needs to be in a group, we've got one. If someone needs to talk, we'll be here, Lord. But we're thankful that you tell us that you came for one in this story, and it's one soul. So we know there's souls out here that need your touch. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Amanda.